0: You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Sasha Wolf, who is using Phoenix and Elixir to build a service that stitches together multiple independent microservices. Sasha, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, it's great to be here.
0: Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the site that we're going to talk about today?
1: Sure. Um, so I'm a full-stack developer, a senior full-stack developer at a little company called Doc in Germany. And I've been working with a software developer for over five years now, used various technologies. I At some point, I built apps. I did some Java backends. But at the end of the day, I arrived at Elixir and Phoenix as like my preferred way to build applications. And that's also what we're using at Doc. So what we do at Betadoc is basically provide a service that you as a patient can come to us and offer like a diagnosis and some medical issue. And we then help you to find the best doctor for your particular case. Because you as an average Joe, you mean you have some diagnosis from your doctor. I don't know, maybe some recommendation to get the surgery. But then how do you know where to go to actually get the best treatment, right? Somebody who has never dealt with it before. And that's where we come in. Um, work a lot with insurances. So insurances actually pay us f- that patients get recommendations from us. Because they also say if a patient gets a good doctor on the first try, that's a lot cheaper than him going through five doctors. Um, so it tends to be a win-win-win. Where like a patient wins, we win and the insurance win but the thing about that is that we need to persist medical information linked to a person which is like the top tier of um, data privacy laws in germany like there's nothing which is more pro- protection worthy in germany than this particular data and that also means we have to take utmost care in how we handle this data and we can just nearly really pass it around Um, which makes some design decisions for us in in how we deal with data.
0: Right. So I'm not too familiar with the laws in Germany, but is there basically like HIPAA compliance, but some other label for it?
1: Um, We have a TÜV, which is like, to be honest, I don't know what TÜV stands for, but it's like this quality insurance thing, which to a certain degree is also um, related to to the state. I might might be wrong here, but um, it's like this official thing. You also have to go to the TÜV to check your car to make sure it's still secure. And they um, basically give us, uh, they check us regularly, I think once a, wee, a year to make sure that, well, we are compliant to um, the, the, the laws there. That's one thing, the laws. Uh, but it's another thing if like the newspaper comes out the next day and says like, here, BetterDoc is leaking patient data. Like maybe that's like the death of a startup like us. Oh, yeah. And the app we're building better BetterDoc with it uh, mainly, we have some smaller other apps, but that's like the main big thing is an app we call Stacker. And that's a small little application which basically helps us to orchestrate lots of my other microservices we have, which all serve independent HTML snippets, which on their own are not that useful. But then this application, Stacker, takes these snippets and like stitches them together in one big site where the user can actually interact with and do some useful things with it.
0: Okay, so this app is like a unified way to access, you know, more than one microservice.
1: Yes, that's the idea about it.
0: Okay. So do you recall when you started to develop this project? Like how many months or years ago?
1: Yeah, it's pretty much um, exactly a year ago. I mean, I also joined the company about a year ago. Uh, I first commit was in March, 2019 from what I've heard. So it's not that long ago and I joined in June. So yeah, pretty fresh. Yeah, that's, it has been in constant development ever since. So like a lot of things changing.
0: Nice. So how long did it take to go from, you know, that first commit to shipping some type of MVP that you started to
1: use? I can't tell you that exactly. Um, like what I've, what I've been told is that, um, after I basically came on board, which was in June, that was when things really picked up before that we had like a first prototype, which was back then actually written in Java. Um, and then we decided to, to go for Elixir and the first like real users using the pages constructed by stacker was around the time when I joined. So pretty much a year ago now.
0: Okay. Yeah. That must've been fun going from Java to Elixir. Like those are two, so different languages.
1: That's true. Yes. I mean, um, the, the whole idea about the, the app is that like it fetches all these different HTML fragments from lots of little microservices. So at the end of the day, uh, choosing Elixir and the Beam seemed like a pretty natural fit because it required a lot of parallel processing, a lot of getting requests in parallel and like making sure things work. So um, the, the switch over from Java to Elixir was, 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 uh, seemed like a good choice back then.
0: Yeah, speaking of that, did you guys look into other solutions besides Elixir before you decided to choose that? Or was there just so many great things about Elixir? It you know, ended up being like a perfect match for this type of app.
1: There, there are multiple reasons we ended up at Elixir. And like I said, we tried out Java before. Um, and like one of the reasons why we didn't choose Java, I just said earlier with like the concurrency thing. But one of the other reasons is like, we are a super small startup and um, we <laughs> just wanted to make something cool, right? So we wanted to attract people to, to, to work for us. And like having a Java application and Java microservices is not, I would say in a traditional sense, the cool thing to do. It's like the more of a regular thing to do. And mean um, one other alternative would have been to use Ruby, which is also used pretty extensively in our um, in our microservice landscape. So lots of lots of small services I mentioned earlier are actually written in Ruby, but that pretty much fell out from the get go because uh, Ruby is not that known for having strong parallel processing capabilities. And we actually had the initial idea about doing a, like a whole um, spec first approach, but okay, like, this is how our app should like stacker, how it should behave. Um, but we buried that back very, very quickly because we realized that's totally overkill for a startup like us. So, um, at the end of the day, we, we, we tried to build it in Redixir. It worked pretty well. So we stick with it.
0: Nice. So you kind of just wrote a bit of Elixir before you decided to really pull the trigger and go full steam ahead with it. Like kind of as like a prototype.
1: Yes. From, from, from what I know, that's how it happened.
0: Now, as for the Phoenix side of things, are there any specific features of Phoenix or you know surrounding libraries like LiveView, etc., that you use in your application that really helped you build it quickly?
1: Uh, back when we started to build it, like LiveView, LiveView wasn't a thing. <laughs> I actually kind of expect if we would build it today, we might uh, invest a little bit in LiveView. What we are using a lot are channels and like so WebSockets. Because the connection between the actual browser and the user and um, stacker is in a WebSocket connection, where we then send the HTML snippets um, to the front end, which when you think about it sounds a lot like live view. Um
0: Yeah, I'm scratching my head here. I'm like, that's pretty much live view, I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. But uh, I mean live view does have a whole lot more. It does this whole funny diffing thing where like it knows, okay, this is static content, this is dynamic content. And at the end of the day, what what we get, we get like an HTML snippet from a microservice and we just push it through and render it in the front end. So it's actually a lot simpler than live view, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if we built this thing today that we would reach for live view. Uh, But back then when when we did it, like live view wasn't a thing, so here we are.
0: Right. So with that said, what made you go down that route of going, you know, serving HTML over WebSockets versus just a regular like server rendered app or even, you know, something in between like maybe using turbo links?
1: That's a good question. At the end, it's a combination of like simplicity and also like being burned by a big Rails monolith because um, at BetterDoc we have this big old monolith, which uh, when which was used to be called a website prototype about two years ago, but it was already like six years old. So yeah, which did everything. And now we renamed it very, very lovingly to Borg as like the species from Star Trek because it assimilated mm-hmm. everything it could into, into this big, big, big code base. And so we wanted to, well, get away from, from this monolithic approach out to do something new and have these lo- lots of small little tools, kind of like the Unix world, where you have all these small little programs and then stick them together to make something which is useful. And um, that's how, how we ended up at choosing the the, way, the, way with the, the architecture we are doing right now.
0: Yeah, no, that totally answers it, and uh, I guess it makes sense, right? It's like you broke out all these many different microservices, and I guess, what, I, at some point you had, a, like, a struggle to to kind of unify that, and that's how this project came into existence?
1: Yes, that's almost the whole idea.
0: Right, but then on the flip side, I, I guess you still have the ability to deploy each of those microservices independently, so you're still, I don't know, I'm not going to say like it's a struggle, but it's still something you need to deal with in production, right, like deploying n number of different services.
1: Um. We haven't had that issue yet. I mean, the whole, like I said, said the whole app is uh, about a year ago old, so we don't have that many small microservices yet. I, to be honest, I can't tell you how many are. I would say around 30, maybe, maybe a little bit more, but since we like designed the whole thing from the ground up to be very, very decoupled, um, we haven't had a scenario yet where we needed to like basically deploy one thing uh, together with another thing. And we had some scenarios, for example, where we renamed the service because it just fit better, and then we had to make sure that actually we, the definitions where we keep track of which uh, container, which service should be rendered where, that that are, that these are in sync. But um, we also made that a lot easier recently because we moved the whole definitions into a separate repository, which just gets synced into um, Stacker and like, mounted into volume. Uh, oh, The only thing which is a regular pain in the ass is the old monolith, to be honest, um, because there we have sometimes f- changes where we ha- added an API to fetch fetch some data into a separate service to like slowly wrangle this thing to death, and then we need to make sure that this actually gets deployed in time to not break production.
0: Right. Yeah, there is some like computer science-y term around that, right? Like something with strangling. I forget the yeah, term. Yeah,
1: it's a, a strangler pattern, I think. I mean, back then we actually started uh, with... Uh, I don't know the English word for that, but like to, 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 to bug, um, to put bugs in Borg. So like to actually, uh, make it, emit events into, uh, into Kafka topics to then build, uh, our microservices, which consume these events and to not be totally linked to the monolith. Um, we already were able to like turn off some smaller features from the monolith, um, which we now can basically do in this new, new platform, which we call park it's just an acronym for like platform architecture which is pretty horrible if you ask me but the idea is that you can like have, have this park of little services which then work together to to, to to build something new
0: right yeah i think that english word you might have been looking for could have been like event-driven design that's like a phrase around here
1: yeah yeah i mean i know it's it's, it's called event-driven design but what i meant is like we basically made borg tell us tell us it's, its secret secrets without it's knowing ah hmm. <laughs> So but, 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 but that's how we tend to think about it. We have a lot of visual thinkers in our team, so we, we tend to make these analogies.
0: Right. You can never go wrong making an analogy to uh, the board collective. Resistance is futile. <laughs> so going back to your app here, this one that unifies everything together, is this uh, all just sitting in one Git repo, or do you have it split up?
1: It's, like I said, split sitting in one Git repo, like the code, actually. Um, we also used to have the stack files, which we call them, like where we actually basically define, okay, these are the microservices, which should then be stitched together into one page. They used also to live into the repository until last week when we moved them out into a separate repository. Uh, So technically we now have two repositories, but one is the actual code doing things. And the other is just these definitions, which tend to change very frequently. So it made a lot of sense to move them out and not go through the CI all the time.
0: Right. Do you know roughly maybe off the top of your head, how big this app is in terms of lines of code, or maybe, you know, if you're using context with Phoenix, if you can go over a couple of those, or is it mainly just, you know, gluing together other stuff. And this is like a really small app.
1: Um, can't tell you the exactly lines of codes, but we have around 90 modules. So it's not that small. It's I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a microservice um, because we have a lot, lot of other things in there, which go beyond the scope of actually stitching um, the requests together. And um, we have a whole the whole idea about that these EVs microservices can also emit events, like uh, not to like in a traditional sense to a Kafka topic or like a RabbitMQ, but that they these events are encoded in like a HTTP header. And then basically Stacker takes these events, parses them and then can uh, emit them on the front end side. So you can in the front end actually say, okay, this field here is an input field. I would like to fill it out if like this event comes in and um, just give, take this field from the event and put it in here, which can be useful for when the patient, when somebody selects a location and then we just basically emit an event with like latitude and longitude and have like hidden input fields. Um, and we have also the capability to subs- basically tell uh, one of these microservices to subscribe to an event so that stacker on the server side knows, okay, this service here is interested in this event of this type and I'm now I'm just going to send it a new request with the data from the event so it can render a new perspective which we tend to use for search things so when you have like one uh, one, one placeholder um, one one part of the microservices um, which is rendering a form and then we have another one which is rendering the results so you actually have a form and you enter everything in there and then send submit this submit does nothing but emitting these events, and then the actual result uh, result microservice picks that up, or result endpoint, and renders the results. And we had very good experiences with that because we have certain places where we basically have multiple subscribers to the search, and then one renders them as a an graph and one displays them as a list and one shows a map. And we can just stick them together and it just works TM. So the project pretty much grew over time. Uh, into something bigger than just orchestrating the responses and just helping us to connect the different fragments, uh, but keeping them decoupled at the same time.
0: Right. Very cool. Yeah. It almost sounds like in a way, maybe you're doing something similar to what you could possibly do with like uh, a PubSub in Phoenix or no.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you actually are using PubSub in some places. Okay. Um, which is, which is a pretty new feature and i'm gonna to have to share some terminology here because i always tend to reach for that because what we call like i said we call the um, actual definitions like actual page we call that a stack and we call the parts of a page which come from the different services we call these a container because it's, like it's a container where something is inside i know containers is a pretty overloaded term but that's how, how we tend to call these things and like one recent addition which we had is basically um, that. We can embed like in a stack in a stack to then make a selection in these in this other stack. For example, if you say, okay, I want to select the location, then you can basically say, okay, I'm here, I'm this container, and I would like to uh, have a location selected. And then you, um, when Stacker knows, okay, to select the location, I need to render this other stack here. And then in that other stack, which just gets then embedded in there, you render everything and you can select your location and that then tells Stacker, like, all right, here, yeah, I'm now done and that's where we use PubSub because um, this embedding actually just uh, opens a new channel to Phoenix, and which means we spawn a new process on the backend and then everything is done. We basically use a PubSub mechanism to tell the parent um, channel, like, hey, I'm done. Uh, pl- please, you can now um, show. The, 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 the final screen and like render and request the result from the original service, which embedded, which it then gets over the pub sub information. So it gets the information which was selected and sends that to original container service to then display it in the, in the place where the embedding happened. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. And just to be clear there, like when you omit that event, the payload, there is HTML that you ultimately just drop into the page then.
1: And not particularly, like, the, the, the result um, is also an event which is emitted, like uh, this, the stacker event, which is emitted by these um, one of the services in these intent stack. It doesn't matter from which one it comes. So, like, the embedded stack basically can have one service, which at some point says, all right, like, this is done now. We have selected a location. And uh, that event then just contains a JSON payload. And this JSON uh, payload, and the event name gets broadcasted to the embedding. Um stack, so the one which originally was sent to the so the user and then it um, sends this JSON payload to the service which said okay, I would like to get a location here, but I don't care about how you do it.
0: Okay. and then for the frontend then do you have some JavaScript library like react or Vue to to do something with that payload?
1: Actually no, like it's over another JavaScript in the front end because it's pretty simple. it's um, we have it boils down to right now three major JavaScript files. Uh, we have a one which we call the shell, where we connect to the um, to Phoenix and where we do the whole message passing. Like we say, okay, these are the messages we are interested in. And then we pass these to um, another JavaScript class, which is called container. And that just takes care of getting the HTML snippet and embedding it in the DOM, and then it also informs um, the, the shell about if like a link click happens or if like a form submission happens, because we ob- 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 obviously need to capture those. We can't just do the usual browser thing, but we have to capture the form submissions, we have to capture the link clicks and then send them back to stacker and then stacker basically uh, knows how, what to do with it for the link clicks. It just then submits a new request to the, um, originally to the container, which originally sent this HTML. Okay. And so beyond that, there is not much more going on in the JavaScript landscape. We have some JavaScript to support this embedding, which is like this third file. But beyond that, it's pretty much just these three major files. I mean, we have some utilities here and there, but we don't use any kind of uh, front-end library like React or Vue.
0: Okay. Overall, like high-level overview, are you happy with the way that you architected this type of setup? Like. Did you weigh the pros and cons versus doing just like, you know, a REST API or GraphQL or something like that or other possible ways to display this? Like is this something you just started with or did you like end up here as an end result of, you know, trying other things first?
1: To be honest, I can't tell you exactly because when I joined, um this was how, how we what we ended up at, but I can tell you that we have been very happy with how this works because we've happy in multiple scenarios where we um could, we're just able to basically define like a new small service which serves one or two of these um, HTML snippets of these containers, and then just embed them in some some other in some places, and like uh, they just tend to work. So like um, if you have like one 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 container which for example helps you select the location of of, of, a, of a patient, then you could um, could just swap that out with like a different container at another date as long as like the um, events which are made a bit by it are the same. And so that gift gave us a lot of flexibility. We actually did a hackathon a while ago where we tried to make like a horrible scenario where our old monolith, which is still used in a lot of places, um, basically just vanished overnight. That was the scenario. And like, we have like one week to get back up and running with like a minimal production ready uh, system to like help us deal with our daily work. We wanted to do that all, obviously, in our new platform park, and that actually went pretty well because, um, like, the capabilities Stacker gave us with like this embedding and these events and this sticking stitching together made it super simple to build these small services and um, just stick them together and make it work. Nice. So um, we are we are really very happy with how this thing turns out, which is also one of the reasons why we want to make uh, Stacker open source at some point.
0: Oh, very cool. Yeah, when that happens, uh, I'll make sure to edit in the show notes to have a link to that, in case it's not up by the time this episode airs. But uh, when it comes to this that service here... Un-
1: unlikely, unlikely. <laughs> not, not yeah, it's definitely a thing which is more out in the next half a year, at the minimum, so yeah.
0: Now, going back to this Elixir app here, you know, you mentioned that this architecture allowed you to set things up pretty quickly from you know ground zero using this platform, were there specific libraries that you use that you know really allowed you to glue all the stuff together like pretty rapidly like basically if you went to your mix file you know what are some interesting libraries that are made of, you know are composed of this project
1: yeah yeah uh, nothing surprising i mean um we obviously use the like, in the elixir space as but also for the other smaller services we use the html phoenix stuff i mean we have distillery we have credo um, but beyond that it's just we have http poison as an http client um, but beyond that, it's pretty standard all the way down. I mean, we have, um, we still use distillery for the re- to release stacker, We our, our smaller services uh, tend to use the new uh, elixir releases, but beyond that, um, we, we use uh, redis, which is maybe like the one interesting thing here. So we, we use redis to keep uh, authentication information around because stacker also takes care of authentication. So it renders like a super simple login page. And it then actually takes just this lock-in information that locks into the um, old monolith I mentioned earlier, which is like an API endpoint we wrote there. But beyond that, it's um, pretty standard all the way down.
0: Okay. What about something like a, a persistent database like Postgres, or is that more really focused on the individual service, not your unified like stitching together service?
1: Yes. So like our individual services, they tend to use Postgres pretty much exclusively. But stacker itself is only using Redis to to persist the authentication information and nothing else gets persisted in there. We have some in-memory stuff, obviously. Um, So like the whole information about, okay, what state is now a container in? Like what's like the last URL we requested? Um, Things like that. That's kept in memory because um, there hasn't been a use case yet where we say we want to persist these. We have some thoughts about at some point, making sure that if some, if like stacker goes down, that you don't lose the session, but, um, that's like more of an idea right now and nothing, which is like business critical, you know?
0: Yep. So these other services that you have here that you're help stitching together, are they all written in Elixir or do you have a couple, like using different tech stacks and languages?
1: Most of them are actually written in Ruby and rails because that's what, um, lots of, a lot bigger, most, most of the team knows, um, but we have to, I think, not to other services which are written in Elixir. Uh, like I said, the main reason is that Ruby is still the most comfortable language for a lot of a team. I When I came on board, I actually came on board as an Elixir developer, because I used to develop Elixir before that. But uh, apart from me and some other developer, there are not uh, that many teams on the, uh, members on the team which actually know how to write Elixir. So we tend to write these um, smaller services in Ruby. Um, but Elixir is getting traction. Let's just say that.
0: Right. So I guess, uh, you get to have fun maybe during lunchtime or just like, by the way, you know, let's, uh, let's move the, you know, this new servers over to Elixir and then try to get some other folks on board.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, with, with like the whole pandemic going down, it got a little bit more difficult to, to do like also learning together these things. I mean, the whole, I had some plans about doing like a hands-on workshop, um, to, to, to get people more, uh, familiar with Elixir. That's obviously a little bit more difficult now with everybody staying home. Yeah,
0: you're going to have to assimilate them remotely, I I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, basically. (laughs) So as for the rest of your tech stack here, do you use something like Docker in development or even production? Because it sounds like if you have all these different microservices running, it may be a little bit tricky maybe in development to spin those up manually.
1: Yeah, Um, we used to have all of them on Heroku, which got very pricey at the end. And now we are in the situation of migrating to uh, AWS and Kubernetes. So all all these smaller services were already dockerized. They were already running in Docker containers on Heroku, which was a very deliberate choice because we wanted to move away from Heroku at some point. And now we have moved most of these services over to Kubernetes, like the old Monolith is still running on um, Heroku, and I expect it will continue to run there for some time. But beyond that, everything, I'm not sure if everything, but most of the the smaller, the new things is now running on in Kubernetes and Docker. And um, which makes it also very nice that Stacker is the only service which is actually reachable from the web. Okay, that's not entirely true. We have some other smaller services which are also reachable from the web, but um, all of these smaller services, all of these container services, which send their snippets are just running in a, a subnet, which is like not reachable from the web.
0: Nice yeah, it's always a win when you can do things like that. It's like one less uh, thing to to worry about
1: exactly so um all of these do still authentication. We have a jWT token uh, which is basically sent by stacker alongside every request, and they authenticate that to make sure that it's actually well coming from what we expected to. but it's still nice to well, not have to worry about um, getting unrestricted traffic to these to these services
0: right, yeah, less attack service is uh, always a good idea. When you can do it, uh, as for Docker though, you know, you're running Kubernetes in production, but do you also use maybe something like Docker compose and development or now?
1: Yes, we use Compose in development, um, not in every service because most of these services you tend to develop on actively and then you need them while you develop that on. And I'm personally not a fan of like using Docker to like literally have it running for development. But especially a stacker, we have a Docker Compose setup because you tend to need it while developing when you, for example, want to test, okay, I now have this event which is emitted by this one container and it should be picked up by this other container. I want to test that now. And therefore and for Visa obviously we need to have a stacker running locally. And there we have a Docker Compose setup where you can just say Docker Compose up and it just works. So which is has been very nice.
0: Right. So on that AWS setup, do you use their managed Kubernetes, the EKS service, or no?
1: Yes, yes, we do. Um yeah, at the moment we have nobody in the team who is like super deep into AWS and like setting up uh, EC2 instance from scratch from scratch. So we definitely were looking for something uh, managed. We also looked a little bit into using Nomad because like it felt like a more like a simpler alternative to Kubernetes. But then again, you would need to ha- would have to manage that on your own, and we didn't want to do that. So we ended up with Kubernetes.
0: So how did that turn out in the end? Like you mentioned, not really having anyone who's super deep into AWS. Like, were were you the one in control of getting all of that set up in EKS or someone else?
1: Uh, some, some, another colleague who also then dived into Terraform a bit more. I mean, I, I, I know my way about about the Terraform file, but, um, I'm not, like, I'm not using it day to day. So we have one colleague who basically took care of setting everything up from scratch, like actually took the, the, the necessary deep dive uh, into the various topics to understand what's going on to like set up the networking rules etc
0: and then ultimately automated that with terraform
1: yeah and okay exactly automated terraform from there on we basically just had had, had our um ci pipelines which then built the Docker containers and pushed them into a registry so we didn't have to to like look too deeply into how these, how these things work to migrate um, these services over which was um surprisingly easy now that i think about it like we we expect a lot of a lot of more more friction migrating over but it happened uh, it turned out to be more simple than expected i mean everybody on the team got a kubernetes in action book from manning (laughs) so like everybody got that and started to read that um but beyond that we didn't have the need to like dive more deeply into aws
0: That's kind of funny, right? It's like back to your uh, Borg collective theme. It's like everyone just got the same book and like read it in unison because now everyone needs to know Kubernetes. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's also pretty funny that uh, that, that Kubernetes used to be called Borg internally at Google. So there you have it. We're back to Borg.
0: So if you you know this number, I'm not sure if you're really in the weeds with the AWS setup, but do you know like how many nodes you run in that cluster on EKS?
1: To be honest, I don't.
0: Right. Well, we didn't really touch on this. Like... You know, this is an internal application, right? It's not a public-facing one that folks will be able to like click a link in the notes and see it.
1: Yeah, it's yet yeah, it's, it's an internal application. I mean, um, we 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 have some ideas about maybe opening, have some basically public-facing stacks, but we didn't have the need yet. Um, so we internally we only have about don't let me lie, but sixty users, and like it's also a situation where we can like. Uh, in theory, we could turn off the service at like 6 p.m. because nobody's using it then, man. <laughs> right. Um, but um, like having, to, having used Elixir and Phoenix was like nice because um, the, even the old monolith, which is used by the small amount of people, um, tends to go into its knees easily when everybody locks in in the morning. It's ridiculous, to be honest. <laughs> So um, having a platform like Elixir and Phoenix was a lot uh, was nice because that that's just one factor we didn't have to worry about that much anymore. And we haven't had any load testing yet, but I'm pretty confident to say that um, that it would be able to handle quite uh, quite some load because like the things it actually does are not that um, CPU or RAM intensive. So I mean, as as long as we basically have enough uh, RAM, the, 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 this stacker should continue to work. At the end of the day, it, it it's mostly waiting, for sending requests and waiting for responses.
0: Right. So, do you know maybe offhand like the specs of uh, the machines running on the cluster, like in terms of RAM or CPU?
1: Um, I don't know the exact specs. I know that most of them are medium, like the ac 2 medium instances, like as these in production. Um, but I can't tell you how many it are. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure. For, offhand. for our staging environment, uh, it, it's just micro instances because that's enough.
0: Right. So for the Kubernetes setup, like which load balancer did you decide to use? Like, do you have all like NGINX in there, or traffic, or or whatever EKS gives you? Maybe. Yeah.
1: We, right now, we're just using what EKS gives us. Um, it hasn't been too much thought into to uh, what we need to use there. We have some um, AWS gateways which we use to um, forward API gateways to forward some some requests. Which most of them like on a public facing website where most of them go to the old monolith, because that one is also serving a website. And then we have some parts of a website, basically some some sub pages where we um, have some newer services serving some things, because we also now have a place where you can where a patient when he comes on a website can basically do a first survey and then we can um, tell them if we we can like send them further information without they, them having to call us, which, which is what, how it used to be. Every patient had to call us and now not everybody has to call us. And this is like a new service, uh, which does that. Um, but beyond that, I, we just take what EKS gives us.
0: Okay. Do you use any other AWS services like S3 or maybe ElastiCache for Redis? Um,
1: we use some lambdas actually for backup purposes, AWS lambdas. And I mean, we, we use the managed database and we manage Elasticsearch. Uh, and I think also the managed managed Redis from, from AWS. So like all of the, our persistent stuff is definitely uh, managed by AWS.
0: Right. So it's sitting outside of the, uh, Kubernetes cluster. Yes. Yeah. definitely makes life a lot easier there.
1: Yeah. Especially because we are a small team. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, we are around, I can't say exactly. I would have to count now, but we are around eight people eight developers actually, so, um, not having to, 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 to deal a lot with maintaining, um, self-managed resources, uh, is a big boon for us.
0: Yeah, definitely. So do you use some of AWS stuff for like logging and metrics and error reporting as well, or do you use different tools for that?
1: For, um, for error reporting, we use mostly Sentry. Um, we also have some, um, Logstash and Kibana set up for our logs. I'm not sure if we do that managed. I think this is also managed. Um, And that's it for the most part, like the Sentry stuff and the um, Kibana stuff and the Logstash stuff.
0: So as for speaking about maybe other services you might be using, uh, does this application send email out?
1: It does not yet. I mean, it takes co-authentication. So at some point maybe, but most of our email sending happens in the monolith. And to be honest, uh, I don't know what we are using there.
0: Okay. So earlier you mentioned that, you know, you do have CI set up and you push things to a Docker registry. I would imagine that would be ECR, right? Like Amazon's uh, managed container registry.
1: Yes, exactly. We, um, we, we, we have Circa CI and there we basically build the Docker images and then push them to ECR.
0: Okay. Do you maybe want to walk us through then like what your deployment process looks like, like starting from development, right? Like let's say you're about to write a new feature, like just walk us through that all the way to this, this running live on the Kubernetes cluster.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, as, as usually we, we start with a feature branch uh, where development happens on. We push to that different feature branch, and at some point we open a pull request. Sometimes we open a draft pull request if we want to get some early feedback, which has been a very useful feature from GitHub. And then at some point it gets merged into master, and from there on um, the circus CI picks that up and actually builds um, a Docker image containing a release. So we Like I said, we use distiller releases in there, which is a multi-stage docker file. So we have some first stage, which actually builds um, the release. Like it stores all the NPM stuff. And um, then we have a second stage, which copies that release over. So we have a lot lot more slimmer docker image at the end of the day. And that uh, CircusEye then pushes that image to um, the ECR and it also takes the deployment descriptors which are part of the repository so we have a separate folder in the repository where we have our kubernetes deployment descriptors and applies them again um, to the cluster yeah from there on kubernetes just fetches the new image and serves it and then it's in staging then we make sure that everything is working fine and then we have a small little um, cli app um a colleague wrote on uh, during the innovation Friday I'm gonna get back to that later we have like 20% time every Friday, we can do learning stuff. And we have some CI app we can use to then basically tag this current master version as a new release. It's just a git tag, which again gets picked up by CI push to our um, push to again to the um, ECR. And then it uh, applies the Deployment descriptors, again, for the production environment. And from there on, we have a production uh, release and, deploy- and deployment.
0: Nice. So you have pretty much a full-blown like, CI, CD setup. Like very little manual intervention. Yes.
1: Yeah, like the manual um, intervention is like, at this point, clicking the merge button. And then if you want to release it uh, on your local machine to say, hey, I want to release that. And it gives you some nice information. Okay, these are like the features you would release because these have the pull requests that have been merged. And then they say, yes, that's fine, and then it's live after a few minutes.
0: Right. So you mentioned you have a team of about eight. Uh if those are all developers, do they all have the same access rights to be able to like merge things into release branches or no?
1: At the moment, yes. We hadn't had the use need yet to to reduce that. Um I mean we we have on all our repositories, we have uh code reviews uh as required so you can't just merge a pull request uh, merge, merge a merge branch and push it to master um, unless you're an administrator like me <laughs> um but um, beyond that you actually have to do a pull request and somebody has to look at it and we also use um like the pull request notifications in slack so that people like te- pick up that um, somebody requested a pull request from them but beyond that, I mean, everybody can, in theory, go ahead and mess with our um, Kubernetes cluster. Like everybody has access to that. Um, since we haven't had any negative experiences with that yet, uh, we, we, we didn't change anything about that yet, but I mean, we mostly tend to do that we mostly go to Kubernetes only if we need to troubleshoot issues. Like we don't uh, go there to apply things manually except for secrets because well, secret management is a pain in the ass.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Do you want to go into how you manage your secrets there?
1: Well, at the moment, it's pretty much um, defining the secret descriptors locally and then applying them. Um, we have some ideas about making that better. Um, top contender right now is Mozilla SOPS, like which basically takes the JSON or like demo files uh, in your repositories and encrypts them with um, with... A key managed then on Amazon, so you don't actually have a key locally on your machine. It uh, takes it fetches that from Amazon from AWS, decrypts that, but it ever never really lives on your machine. And only your credentials live on your machine. Um, so that's a nice thing to keep your secrets around without having to deal with this whole issue about I have a secret encrypted in my Git history. What if a key gets leaked and stuff like that? But right now it is just having these descriptors on file, applying them manually uh, and making sure that you don't have a a typo somewhere.
0: Yeah. It's always tricky to deal with secrets and yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to test. It's like, you know, you make that new secret change and you kind of just roll it out and yeah, hope you don't have typos Yeah,
1: (laughs) Hope you didn't break something. Just, just yesterday I I had to change a secret um, for like an, an app which um, we, we changed how, how it loaded some things. And so we needed to re- remove some things from the secrets and needed to um, set some feature flags in there. <laughs> that, that is always like with base with base 64 encoding, it's always like, I hope I encoded that right and it doesn't break. Right. So yeah.
0: So now speaking of things breaking, uh, what do you do for disaster recovery or unexpected events? Like, do you back up anything that needs to be backed up or like have alarms and notifications set up?
1: Since most of this app is at the moment running internally, um, we tend to get very quick feedback if something is not working. Um, we have automated testing, for example, for our website to make sure that everything is reachable there. Um, we have, like I mentioned earlier, we have Sentry, which sends out emails if something is breaking. Um, and beyond that, for actually persistence layer, we obviously use the managed solutions by AWS, which we had recently to use because we dropped some data by accident. But that uh, tend to but that worked out then fine. Um, so at least you got a chance since, to test your backup. Yeah. But I mean, uh, since AWS does it, it worked. <laughs> um, but yeah, beyond that, since the app is still running internally, uh, we had no need yet to invest into like more of a, uh, maybe some kind of, um, yeah, on call schedule. Right. Mm-hmm. Like some, some, some solutions there. Right.
0: Like a pager duty or something.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, like the nice thing about, about my, about my job and the company at the moment is like, there's no need for that. I mean, um, the, the service can only really be used if some, if like humans actually, uh, look at the information coming in from our customers, from our patients, and like some, somebody at some point needs to, um, look at that and like make a decision based on that.
0: Right. Actually, what you said just reminded me to ask you about something else. You mentioned like patient data. Uh, if you happen to clone anything from production into like development databases, just to have some seeded data, do you scrape all of that of like, you know, personal information or do you not even do
1: that and you just generate fake data? Um, yes, uh, for monolith, we have some mechanisms in place to do some uh, anonymization, but I don't know exactly how they work, um. Uh, but for the newer services, we just use fake data. It's easier and it's less of a hassle and like less of a can of worms.
0: Right, because I remember you said earlier on, right at the start of this episode, it's pretty much a death wish if uh, if that happens to get out there in the public.
1: Yes, that's uh, that would be the death of of of, um, of my employer, definitely.
0: <laughs> yep. So speaking about uh, the opposite of death here, like what would you say are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this app?
1: Some of the best things which we've learned is um, that you, well, you shouldn't be uh, afraid to jump into this whole area of OTP. I mean, if you get started, sure, take it slowly. But uh, we had a lot of fun and a lot of uh, useful features which we could extract from modeling um, the, the, these connections to the front end as like processes and, and then keeping state around in there. So just trying things out there and like like, like embracing the in-memory state has been really been a pleasure and uh, has been really really useful for us i i wouldn't I would recommend to people that it, you don't have to keep everything persisted and like um, some things are fine to keep you kept in memory
0: right so just to be clear here you know in relation to something like live view are you doing something similar then so for like every websocket connection to whatever endpoint you're keeping a uh, a process open server side
1: yeah pretty much um for we actually keep multiple processes open we have like obviously the one process which keeps track of the web circle connection which which has been provided by phoenix but that from there we spawn um, one process for each of these containers so each of these containers is a separate process which then takes also care of this event handling and so on and so forth. And um, there we also, like I mentioned earlier, we use Pub- Phoenix PubSub to also emit um, the events returned by one um, container to e- emit it to all the other containers running, all the other uh, processes which represent a container. So we, if like an average stack is something like, I don't know, five containers maybe. So you have five processes running for including uh, then plus the one from Phoenix. So six processes.
0: Right. And these are all fairly lightweight processes right you're not storing like megabytes of information no,
1: they're very lightweight we what we keep in there is like what's the actual container like the original definition load or which we load from file from from the file from disk and um like the id of the current session and things like that at some point we want to keep some more state around in there um but nothing which would blow out the um, memory usage out of proportions
0: very cool. So, Sasha, thanks a lot for coming on the Writing and Production podcast. It was really great having you on.
1: Yeah, it was great fun. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, no problem. So, before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that?
1: Yes, I can do that. So, you can find me on, on Twitter at wolf4earth, for which, like, the actual number. And my website is sashawolf.me. And one thing, if you're listening to this and you're living in Germany, BattleBock um, is hiring. So if you're interested in doing some here, we would be happy to have you.
0: Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.